Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, we're going to skip the intro stuff today and get right into some some breaking news, if you will. Okay, fantastic. What is it, Mike? What's the news? Well, all right. I may have oversold it a little bit by calling it breaking news, but a little update, a little behind the scenes stuff. We wanted to let you guys know that there is a lot going on over the next few weeks, so that our, our recording schedule may get bumped around a little bit. So we are going to continue to bring you episodes every week. No worries. Uh, but you may see a few more mini episodes sneak their way in uh, over the course of September and October because we've just got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. So uh, one of the things we've got going on is New York Comic Con. Uh, so I'm going to be flying over to New York once again uh, to meet up with Mike where we and we'll be speaking to lots of famous people about some cool TV shows, comics, films, whatever, whatever they want to talk to us about. Some of them might hopefully be official interviews. Right. But uh, <laughs> there's a lot of people, a lot of people who go to the Comic Con, so it should be lots of fun. So that's going to be a big thing. Obviously, I'm, I'm going to be flying. So it's going to take up time, stuff like that. Yeah, it's just a, it's a super busy weekend. Although we are hoping to this year record a little more content uh, together from the show than we did last year. We had big plans last year and it just sort of all got really busy. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's right. We're not going to promise that, though. But right. No promises. That's the hope. But, that's the but hope. we're going to try. Uh, and then the weekend before that, I'm actually going to another Comic-Con, the Baltimore Comic-Con, which is a little bit more comic book focused, but they are going to have some good media guests. So I'm hoping to maybe get some uh, some interviews or some news scoops to share there as well. But that's two weekends that I'm going to be out of town and one that Phil's going to be out of town. On top of all that, I am moving, uh, not far, but moving into a new house, which is obviously going to take up a lot of time in terms of you know packing and actually moving and then unpacking and all of that stuff. And this is all happening kind of at the same time, sort of towards the end of September, beginning, middle of October. So like I said, we're going to have new content for you every week. But if you happen to notice that maybe there's a couple more mini episodes uh, than we usually try to do, just know that it's because we're just trying to get through a really busy time and that things will settle down and return to normal uh, you know, very soon. Yeah, and a mini episode is better than nothing. <laughs> Some could argue that, but I like to think so. Yeah. yeah. Listen, I, I love our mini episodes, and a lot of listeners have told us that those are some of their favorites, so I'm not really worried about it. I just want people to know that, you know, it's not because we're slacking or running out of ideas. It's just a matter of, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and so many days in the week, and, you know, travel and, and moving and things like that, uh, you know, they, they yeah. take up some of those hours and days. And the Wayback Machine's only good for when we're... We're looking at what happened in the year. Right, right. It's not specific enough to help, you know, with the with the workload. So we have to do make do with what we have. Exactly. So that's what's going on. We like to keep you guys up to date, um, and that's the news. So, Phil, why don't we go ahead and get into the episode? Tell people what we're going to be talking about in this week's show. Okay. This episode we're going to be going after the ending of the Notebook and Willow. So two films which are both very similar in content. Oh, extreme. I mean, they're both, they're both, well, they both have romance in them. That's, that's one thing. 
Yeah. In uh, common. Uh, Maybe I the conf- only thing. I always confuse the two, to be honest. <laughs> right. Right. Well, there's the, there is that scene where Ryan Gosling morphs into different animals, you know? Oh, yeah. The fame. Yeah. That's, yeah. When I they're standing in the rain and then he morphs into a llama and then they kiss. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, how could you not get that confused? I know. That was, that's Willow. beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. That. yeah. <laughs> and when, uh, when the bad guys are, you know, sent to another dimension through magic spell and then they all go to the diner afterwards. Right. You know, so. Right. Exactly. They are very similar movies. It's true. Mm. But that's that's the films we're doing after the endings for. But uh, Mike, do you want to tell the listeners what we're doing for our, our list this week? Yes, for our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, we are doing the movies we missed from the 1970s. I am so much more excited about this list than I was last week. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and these are movies, you know, we've done our 100 years of Hollywood. We've gone through every year of the past 100 years of Hollywood. So this is our revisiting of the 70s and sharing movies that either just missed our lists or movies that we have discovered since we we originally did the list for a certain year. So uh, I'm excited about this and a lot of new movies on the list for me um, and and just some some really cool films to talk about. Yeah, lots of great films from the 70s, but uh, that's all later on. But should we crack on with the uh, our endings then? Yeah, let's do it. Let's start off with uh, The Notebook. How's that sound? That works for me. Do you want to give uh, the listeners a rundown for what happened in the film? Sure thing. So The Notebook, 2004. I can't believe it's been 14 years since that movie came out, by the way. Yeah, no, it's um, <laughs> Directed by Nick Cassavetes, based on the novel by Nicholas Sparks, starring Ryan Gosling, Rachel McAdams, James Garner, Jenna Rollins, Joan Allen, and James Marsden. And the story goes that in the present, we see an elderly man named Duke reading a romantic story from his notebook to a fellow patient, a woman, in a nursing home. Then we flash back to 1940, where impoverished Noah Calhoun has a summer love affair with posh Allie Hamilton. Allie's parents ban her from seeing Noah because he's poor, and Allie's family packs up to return home. Allie gets Noah a message that she loves him, but he gets it too late and they're gone. Noah writes letters to Allie every day for a year, but her mom makes sure she never sees them. Oh, boo is right. So Noah enlists in the army to fight in World War II, where his best friend Finn is killed. Allie, meanwhile, volunteers in a hospital for wounded soldiers where she meets Captain Lon Hammond Jr., a young lawyer, also from the right side of the tracks, and they get engaged. Noah returns from war and becomes convinced that he can win Allie back if he restores the house they were going to share. Allie hears about the finished house and goes to see him before her wedding, and of course, they rekindle their relationship. When? Allie's mom shows up. She reveals that she too had once been in love with a poor boy when she was young, and she still thinks about him. Then she gives Allie all of Noah's letters. Allie breaks up with Lon and returns to Noah. Cut back to the present, we learn that the old woman is an Alzheimer-stricken Allie and that Duke is the nickname for Noah. He's rereading his old journals to help her remember. Noah spends the night with Allie, and she remembers him just in time for them both to pass away together during the night. And that is The Notebook. Yeah, and as does the died, that's it. We can't do anything more, so we'll move on to Willow now. <laughs> well, I, I, I was going to say, I will I will admit that when I suggested last week we do The Notebook, I had forgotten that the all the major characters are dead at the end of the film. So when I sat down to write my after the ending, I was like, oh, <laughs> like, well, that could have had a little more forethought behind it. But you know what? We forge on anyway, and I'm sure we've both come up with... Uh, you know, creative approaches. Yeah, we've done Thelma and Louise and uh, Melancholia, so you know it's oh, no right. changes to this. Exactly, exactly. So, how do you how do you feel about the Notebook, Phil? I mean, obviously, it's it's widely considered what some people refer to as a chick flick. I'm using air quotes when I say that. Um, but I, I personally think it's a really great movie. What what's your take on it? Well, I I put off watching it for a while because yeah, I thought it was just that, just as, you know, 
I mean, I don't mind a, a nice romance film, but I just uh, the Nick was it Nicholas Sparks? Yeah. I think. Just I think others have come out since you know the, that came out. I was just going, no, I don't really fancy it. But then I sat down and watched it, and it's a really good film. Yeah, I mean, I think it's elevated above most Nicholas Sparks films. Yeah, which I don't dislike. I've my wife likes Nicholas Sparks, so we watch most of the movies of his that come out once they hit video. Although I did see The Notebook in theaters, which was a really powerful experience. I remember when I when I got up at the end of it. Of course, I'm crying because you know me. I cried at the drop of a hat, and yeah, there was yeah. a there was a, a a man in the a couple rows ahead of me who was uh, significantly older than us, you know, and he was just, I mean, like openly sobbing like bawling loudly and i don't say that to make fun of him i thought it was a very profound moment that you know this film had such an effect on somebody oh i'm sure it's it's actually quite close to quite a few people's lives right that there was some and i'm sure there's some stuff with the ending and the alzheimer's and stuff maybe has different effects on different people but you know I, i did find it a very powerful experience but we've watched a lot of nicholas sparks films and i find that most of them are perfectly fine like Date night romance curled up on the couch, like, you know, just throwing it in on the DVD player and and killing an hour and a half. This one, I think, stands out, though, as more than just being kind of like a, you know, a romance novel on film. It's like a really good, solid love story. And it's got a great, it's got a real good cast as well. Oh, the cast is fantastic. Absolutely. So I do, I do like The Notebook quite a bit. So hopefully our, our listeners enjoy it or at least have seen it. Yeah. Although not a prerequisite because, as we said, everyone's dead. So I think we both are probably going to go in some interesting directions here. That's very true. Oh, and just uh, for any listeners, new listeners, you want to listen to those Thelma and Louise and Melancholia endings we did. That was way, way back in episode 25. Yeah, that's right. That was our kind of quarter century celebration of doing movies that, you know, we couldn't do after the endings for. Yeah, but we did. And they were probably brilliant, but I can't recall what mine were. <laughs> right, exactly. All right, so Phil, you want to kick us off then and give us your day after. Okay. Noah and Ali had passed away. Brilliant. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was moved to tears, Phil. Yeah. I'm, I'm so it, impressed. I'm good. That's what I was going for. I thought the passed away was better than saying they died. Yeah. So that's you know, my day after. <laughs> and it's funny because I thought of going in that direction, but I you know, I wasn't sure, so I'm glad one of us did. Well, it was one of the options, <laughs> but I, I just, I, I'm glad to, I think I, I picked the right idea. With it, you know what? I, that's what I love about you, Phil, is you're daring. You take chances, and, yeah, and I appreciate that. I might as well just skip ahead. Immediate after, aftermath, they're still dead, <laughs> long term. Uh, yeah, and they're still dead. No, okay, so here's my day after. Uh, Noah and Ali had passed away. They had no surviving family, so their belongings were marked for charity. The nurse who had found the couple had picked up the notebook. Checking that it was okay, she took the notebook home with her, as she'd always liked Noah and Ali. She felt it important that someone should read the book, as she had seen how important it was to them. She had meant to just read a few pages in the evening, but she read through to the end and was in tears when she put it down. Telling her colleagues about it the next day, the notebook was passed around. At Noah and Ali's funeral the following week, there was a huge crowd of hospital staff and their families to pay their respect to the couple. And that's my day after. Very nice. I like that. That's a that's a cool direction, actually. I went in something completely different, so I like that you were sort of following, you know, the notebook. That's neat. Very cool. And I got a little moved at the end there when the whole when the hospital staff all showed up. Oh, well, I'm glad that's what I was going for. Then. I swear to God, Phil, if you make me cry. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know if I will, but we'll right. see. Okay. I, d- I doubt it. Well... I doubt. Well, maybe. But what's going on then with your day after? Okay. Allie sat up and opened her eyes. She looked. She looked at her hands and realized. Say what? <laughs> she looked at her hands and realized they were young again. Glancing around, she could see that everything was white. Then, with a rush, the memories came flooding back. Her whirlwind romance with a young man named Romeo, standing with Rick in a fog-shrouded airport in Morocco during World <laughs> War II, laying naked in a bed with a rock and roll star named John, who believed in bringing peace to the world. Working at a diner with her boyfriend Tommy, who used to work on the docks. Making pottery with Sam to the strains of the Everly Brothers. All these ill-fated love stories flashed in her mind in an instant. 
Then she remembered her life with Noah. She looked around, knowing they had been in bed together last night, but he was nowhere to be seen. Suddenly, a door opened seemingly out of nowhere, and in walked a being that was neither quite man nor woman, but instead somehow both and neither. Allie looked on in astonishment as luminescent white wings unfolded behind the being after it cleared the door. Hello, Allie, said the being, with a voice that sounded like all the choruses in the world singing in perfect harmony. Welcome to heaven. And that's my day after. Wow, okay. That's very good. <laughs> Thanks. I like her. Uh... She'd been reincarnated many times and all those other people and all. Something like that. Yeah. Oh, all will be good. explained, but yeah, something oh, okay. like that. Like Just for it. the record also, I wasn't trying to uh, emulate the sound of a voice that sounded like all the choruses in the world singing in perfect harmony. I just want to make sure that you guys know that wasn't just a bad impression. I oh, no, I thought, I thought you got that spot on. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. well, I look forward to seeing where you take us on that trip. All right. Thank you. Meanwhile, let's see what's going on in your immediate aftermath. Okay. The notebook sat on a bookshelf. The story within had made the local news and Nangong Global some years ago. It had made its way through the hands of many different people since then. It was now owned by a playwright who was using it as the basis for the latest play. The tale of Noah and Ali had touched him deeply, as it had many others, and he wanted to keep their story alive. He changed a few things, but on the whole stayed true to the love story. The play was a success, and it became a film, a novel, and more. The original notebook, after many years, ended up in a museum, where it was treated with various near-future type chemicals and plastics to ensure it stayed protected. And that's my immediate aftermath. Mm, I like it. Thank you very much. But uh, what's going on there with yours now in heaven? Okay. I'm confused, Ali said. Where's Noah? He died right next to me. He should be here too. And why do I remember so many other lives all of a sudden? Allow me to explain, the angel replied. You see, long ago, our father decided that heaven would only be a place where beings who are capable of infinite love can go. People that are judged to have potential are given several lifetimes to achieve true love and happiness. If one of those loves is cut short, as happened in many cases in your lifetimes, you're allowed to try again until you get it right, so to speak. It's a very intensive process. The fact that it only took you a handful of lives is quite impressive. It seems you are a most worthy choice. Allie tried to digest all this information, but her thoughts kept coming back to Noah. Where is he? She finally asked. Where's Noah? Don't we get to be together now? I'm sorry, the angel replied. I'm afraid you won't be able to see Noah ever again. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Oh, my God. It's a bit of a bummer. <laughs> yeah. It kind of is. Yep. Yeah. Okay. No, it's good, though. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, I want to see where where, where the world is heading in the, uh, in the aftermath of the notebook. So give us your long term. Okay. Humanity had fallen 100 years before oh, after a dreadful Lord. war devastated the planet. Oh, my. Yeah. However, mankind had survived and had slowly begun to rebuild. Uh, most digital records and many books have been lost over the years since the war. One day, a scavenger was looking for supplies. Searching through one of the many ruined buildings, they discovered a notebook. Taking it back to the village, it was passed around until one of the elders looked at it and said that they could read it. The story of Noah and Ali lived once more. It brought comfort and joy to the huddled masses, a story of true love from a time long ago. It resonated with people. Copies were made and passed to other settlements. For those that could not read, speakers travelled around and told the tale of Noah and Ali. And that's my after the ending. Ah, I love it. Very nice. So the tale of true love lives on and helps to comfort and rebuild humanity. That's it. It's beautiful. You need. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you very much. Very nice. I like it. I like how you went with, like I said, following the notebook. I didn't think of that. That was very clever. Yeah, well, I was just, I just didn't have a clue otherwise. Right. No, it's cool. So it's... I just thought, I just went, oh, it's called a notebook. So let's see, you know, that yeah. poor book was just, it's the title of the film, but it's never really, right. you know, what did it get? Did it get, right, you know, right, good right. cuts of the takings? We don't know. Yeah. 
But uh, what's going on with yours then now with the whole, they're, they're separated by All right. heaven? Well, here we go. I, I don't understand, Ali stammered. If we finally got it right, as you said, shouldn't we be together in the afterlife? I'm sorry, the angel replied. That's not how the creator has willed it. You are free now to start your eternal life and find a true soulmate to spend eternity with. I don't want a soulmate, Ali protested. I already have one. I want Noah. The angel tried to calm Ali down, but she grew more and more agitated, getting louder and angrier. Suddenly, there was a flash of light, and Ali was in a new place. Standing before her was Noah. At least, she thought it was Noah. His face looked like Noah's, but it also looked like Rick's and Romeo's and Sam's and John's and Tommy's. I'm sorry, Ali. This is the way it has to be, the man said to her. Noah? Ali asked in confusion. Well, yes, I was him too, or at least a part of me was. I was all of the men you loved at some point or another. It's a part of the selection process. I have to see for myself who truly belongs here. But I knew you were special from the start, Allie. You're going to fit right in here. So you're... you're God? Allie asked. The man simply smiled warmly and put his hand on Allie's forehead. Her world went white once again. When Allie woke up this time, she felt a sense of peace unlike anything she'd ever felt before. She looked around, and through a large picture window, she could see an idyllic neighborhood. The sun was shining, the birds were singing, and neighbors were strolling happily down the sidewalk. With a new sense of purpose and optimism, Allie stepped out into the hereafter and began her journey into eternity. And that's the end. Oh, very nice. Lovely. Thanks. Yes. I got all weirdly metaphysical with yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> and oh, spiritual I like with my ending, which yeah. I don't usually go in that direction, but I, I, I don't know, I kind of dug it and went with it, and there it was. Yeah, it was most enjoyable. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so that is the notebook. Phil, do you have any notes from your trivia book that you can share with us? <laughs> I do, yes. Uh, to prepare for the role, Ryan Gosling lived in Charleston, South Carolina before filming for a couple of months. He rode every morning and built furniture during the day, and he built the kitchen table that features in the movie. Wow. It's not bad as it being a movie star. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what, what are you doing? And you just, you're living around here? Oh, yeah, I just go row and I build furniture on a day. Oh, yeah, and you get paid for that? Right. Yeah, I get paid millions. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. I, Nick Cassavetes wanted someone unknown and not handsome for the role of Noah. So Ryan Gosling was chosen. Oh, yeah. I know women can't stand the sight of him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Repulsive. <laughs> Repulsive Ryan Gosling is what we it's call It's not him. like there's a whole meme dedicated to him saying, hey, girl, yeah. because women like tremble at his gaze. But, know. you know, that, that so that worked out well for, for Nick Cassidy. Yeah, he's, baby Goose is doing okay. Right. <laughs> uh, and also other, other actresses who were considered for the role of Ali or auditioned were Ashley Judd, Britney Spears, Reese Witherspoon, and Jessica Biel. Well, good thing it wasn't Britney Spears because I've seen Crossroads. I know, and when uh, Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling first got together, it was murder because they didn't really like each other at the start of filming. And I think Ryan Gosling even tried to get her removed from the film, but they were sat down, talked to, and they started getting on really well. And I think they went out for a while as well. Oh, there you go. That's interesting. I, I didn't I didn't but, know uh, that. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's the notebook. Okay, very good. All right, well, then let's move on to our next film, which, of course, is Willow. And... Uh, I got a lot of attachment to this movie. We'll talk about that. But before we do that, Phil, why don't you remind people of the events of the story of Willow? Yeah, I tried to keep this brief, but then I forgot until I was writing it that there's an awful lot of going on. There's lots of names, lots of things go on. But anyway, hopefully it'll make sense. So Willow, 1988, directed by Ron Howard. Uh, we got uh, prophecy says a female child will cause the end of evil Queen Bavmorda. So she decides to imprison all pregnant women, as you do. <laughs> However, the child smuggled out. So the queen sends out her daughter, Saoirse, and General Kale to find the baby. Saoirse's played by Joanne Whaley. General Cale's played by Pat Roach, who was in all the Indiana Jones films. And uh, Queen Bav Morda 
was Jean Marsh. Okay, so the baby ends up in an Elwyn village, which uh, the film's equivalent of Dwarves, where a farmer called Willow Wolfgood, played by Warwick Davis, him and his family find the baby. And Willow, he also he wants to be a sorcerer, but he's uh, he's not that good at the minute. But it, uh, it's decided that Willow and a group of Nelwyn will head off to return the baby to the humans of the land in the film they're called Daikinis. Uh, they come across a human warrior named Mad Martigan, played by Val Kilmer, who's locked in a cage, a prisoner. The other Nelwyn return home, and Willow ends up freeing Mad Martigan and leaves the baby with him. However, Brownie steals the baby and fly past Willow, and he gives chase. Uh, the captured but freed by the fairy queen Shalindra, who says that the baby's name is Laura Dannon, and she's the future empress of Tirislean and Bavmorda's Bane. Uh, queen Shalindra gives Willow her wand and tasks him to help Laura Dannon fulfil her destiny. So he heads off with two brownies to find the sorceress Finn Rizal, who me who's meant to be able to help him. They once again meet up with Mad Martigan and find Rizal, who's been turned into a possum by Queen Bavmorda. They end up getting captured and end up in Saoirse's camp, but they escape and Mad Martigan declares his love to Saoirse after being doused with some pixie love dust, which sounds really wrong when I say it out loud. <laughs> uh, they end up meeting up with some friends of Mad Martigan and take Saoirse hostage, but she escapes. There's lots of turn and throwing, some good chase scenes, things like that. They all end up at Tirislean, where trolls now live, and the inhabitants have been cursed and have been frozen into some kind of rock kind of stuff. Battle ensues, a fire-breathing monster appears, and Willow saves the day with a simple sleight of hand trick, resulting in Bad Morda being banished to another dimension. Saoirse and Mad Martigan remain in Tirislean to raise Alora, and Willow returns home to his family. He now has his own magic book and performs some real magic on his return, and everybody goes, oh, and that's Willow. Very nicely done. Thank you very much. Lots of missed out, but that's the general gist of things. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, you can only cover so much. It was a pretty epic, epic film, so yeah, you did a nice yeah. job. Thank you. So, Phil, are you a fan of Willow? And the answer better be yes. Yeah, I love it. I think it's brilliant. Really good. <laughs> yeah, I like this film too. So, uh, story time, because you know I like to gather around, kids. Uncle Mike's going to tell a story about <laughs> when he was young. So, when, when Willow came out, I was uh, slightly... I think I may have mentioned this early on in the show at some point, uh, but when, when it came out, I was slightly obsessed with it uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it was produced by George Lucas, and in the post-Star Wars era, when it seemed like... There was never going to be another Star Wars movie ever again. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I was rabid for anything that had to do with George Lucas at all. And the fact that this was based on his story and he was producing it, I was very interested. And I was getting my Lucasfilm fan club magazines and they had Willow on the cover. And I would read about it and I read about it in Starlog magazine and all these all these things. And I was yeah. just obsessed with it. And so I went on a tear to get everything I could get my hands on of Willow. And somewhere in my house, I still have a box with every single Willow action figure unopened. Oh, wow. And like the Willow board game and all Willow like magazines, everything I could find of Willow before I'd even seen the movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. This was. I was just obsessed with it. And so I, I think the very first time I saw it, I might have been a little disappointed because I built it up in my head to be, you know, the next Star Wars, which it wasn't. But obviously, I still liked it. And I and I do love the movie and I've enjoyed it many times over the years. But it's definitely when I, when I was a kid, I, I maybe took things a little too far with my movie fandom, especially for films I hadn't seen yet. But uh, yeah, I went all in on Willow. Well, it's back then. We didn't have the internet, so you just go and pick up whatever you could. All the magazines, you say all the games, figures. Yeah. You just go and get them because you wanted to, or oh, the sticker albums, and you'd, yeah, go, you'd yeah. see all these images, and you go, wow, I've got no context for it, but I think this is what happens. Right, and exactly. It's all right, but that was all part of the, the charm and the joy of it all, yeah. films back then. Yeah, I mean, half the fun of the movie, I think, for me, was getting so absorbed into its world and buying all these toys and stuff and everything, and, and you know, 
collecting it all, making a collection out of it. I think that certainly was, you know, it was good times, yeah. good times when I was when I was a little younger. But that's what happened in the film. But Mike, what have you got uh, that happened after the ending? Okay, well, as Elora Danan is prophesied to be the new ruler of Tyr Eslin, but is still an infant, Sorsha takes on the role of the leader of the kingdom, with Mad Mardigan as her prince-to-be. The pair decide to get married, and they throw a huge wedding that brings the entire country together. Of course, they invite Willow and all of the Nelwins, who happily travel to Tyr Eslin to be a part of the festivities. After the wedding, Sorsha and Mad Mardigan offer Willow the opportunity to become the official court wizard and a high-ranking member of the ruling council. They invite him to move his family with him to Tyr Eslin, and he happily accepts. Life returns to normal for a while, with Sorsha and Mad Mardigan happily raising the young Alora Danan, and Willow continuing to use Finraziel's book to develop his powers. However, one day, while he's working on a prophecy spell, a dark cloud forms in his chambers and reveals a terrifying future, one that sees everyone he's ever loved dead at his own hands. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Hmm. Okay, this could be one of those times where I just have to remind people, neither Mike or myself know <laughs> what did the ones done it, for yeah. their ending. All so right. well, sometimes there's there similarities. Be, there might be some similarities. We'll, we'll, we'll see. see. We'll see where it goes. All right, okay. well, go ahead then and give us your day after. Uh, life returned to normal. Willow worked on the farm, but in the evenings he studied the spell book and practiced his magic. Sorsha and Mad Martigan had a fiery relationship, but it seemed to work. However, many others in Tiddislane found it hard to trust the daughter of Bavmorda. Peace blossomed throughout the kingdom. It seemed that banishing Bavmord had lifted a blight that had lain across the whole land. Yet a small sliver of the evil queen's consciousness had escaped the banishment, and it now resided in the mind of Willow Wolfgood. Mm. That's my uh, that's my day after. All right. Well, maybe some similarities. We'll see. Mm. I think there's some slight differences too, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's going on there with your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, in a panic, Willow flees Tyrazlene. He doesn't tell his wife or friends what happened, as he's too afraid that something will happen and he'll hurt them. He stumbles along blindly for a while, then starts moving with more purpose. Eventually, he ends up back at the island where they first found Finn Rizil. Isolated, Willow feels like this is his best hope for not hurting anyone. Meanwhile, back at the castle, Willow's wife finds his chambers disheveled from when he rushed out and alerts Mad Mardigan that she fears something has happened to him. Mad Mardigan promises to find him and bring him back safely. He calls for the High Aldwin, who comes and performs a locator spell, revealing to Mad Mardigan that Willow is on the island. Mad Mardigan heads out to retrieve Willow, hoping that he's still all right. But as the High Aldwin attempts to clean up the mess in Willow's home, the Black Cloud reappears, then forcefully enters into the High Aldwin's body. His eyes flash red, then he looks around and lets out an evil smile. Ah, okay. And that's my immediate aftermath. Good, good, yeah. Yeah, okay, cool, though, I like it. Thank you. All right, well, let's hear your immediate aftermath then. Okay. Willow had become focused on his magic studies at the expense of all other things. Over the past two years, it had caused more arguments with his family and friends until Willow had used magic on his best friend, injuring him severely. Willow, feeling that everyone was against him, stormed out of the village and had ended up in an abandoned tower far from home. His wife, Kaya, heartbroken, headed off to Tiris Lane to seek help from Mad Martigan and Sorsha. That's my immediate aftermath. All right. Okay. I almost had him go into Finn Rizal's island, but didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad yeah. you didn't. That would have been slightly yeah. awkward. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's my immediate aftermath. What's going on though with your long term? So, Mad Mardigan and Willow arrive back at Tyr Eslin, but something isn't right. While Willow had been worried that he could hurt his loved ones, Mad Mardigan had reassured him that they would all work together to make sure that that could never happen. But the black storm clouds forming over Tyr Eslin had nothing to do with Willow. They rush into the castle to find the High Aldwin standing over Sorsha and Alora Danan, both of whom have been immobilized by powerful magic. Hello, runt, Aldwin says sneeringly to Willow. 
Willow focuses his mystic vision and sees through the veil of disguise. Queen Bavmorda, he sneers. I should have known this had your evil stench all over it. How did you find your way back to this realm? It wasn't easy, Bavmorda replies, but your little friend here has provided the perfect vessel for my return. Soon I'll be back to full strength and you'll be powerless to stop me. Willow fires a bolt of magic at Bavmorda, but it misses. You weren't even close, she laughs. I wasn't aiming for you, he replies. With dawning terror, Bavmorda turns around and sees that Willow has struck Alora Danan with a powerful spell. Standing before Bavmorda as a young woman, Alora raises her hands, recites a quick spell, and watches as Bavmorda's eternal soul is completely and utterly destroyed. Then she looks at Willow and says, Your destiny remains unchanged, Willow Ufgood. Be not afraid. The land will prosper under your guidance. She then transforms back into a baby. Within minutes, the skies fade to clear blue, the High Aldwin's spirit re-inhabits his body, and Sorsha, Mad Mardigan, and the baby Alora Danan are reunited. Mad Mardigan looks at Willow and says, You did good, kid. I told you you had nothing to worry about. Willow breathes a sigh of relief and with a smile reunites this family. In the years that come, Willow becomes a wise and powerful wizard and Tirazlin prospers under the guidance of himself, Mad Mardigan, Sorsha, and eventually Alora Danan. And that's the end. Oh, fantastic. I like that. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Some magic, some happiness. You know, it's a good fantasy. That's all you need. That's right. Oh, very good. All right. So let's hear then in your uh, long term. Let's see if we uh, took some different paths here or if we just said the same story twice. Uh, no, I think we went a, bit, a little bit different. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, Kaya, Mad Martigan, and Sorsha had spent the past few months seeking out Willow, but there was no sign of him. Yet they kept hearing more and more talk of a great evil growing in the east. Mad Martigan and Sorsha had their suspicions but kept it quiet from Kaya as they did not want to upset her. After many close calls, a few fights, they eventually tracked down Willow. It was as Mad Martigan feared. His Nelwyn friend had been totally corrupted by the evil of Bavmorda and the magical power that he wielded. He had recruited a huge army and mutated them with his twisted magic. Kaya was heartbroken, but determined to speak to her true love. With the help of Mad Martigan and Sorsha, she eventually got her wish. Willow was almost totally controlled by Bavmorda, but for one brief moment, Kaya saw her Willow had returned. They kissed, but Kaya realized the shadow had begun to take over her true love once more. In his last few seconds of consciousness, Willow smiled at Kaya, put his hand on her cheek, and said it would be okay, and then turned his magic on himself. In his death, Willow had finally defeated Bavmorda, and the kingdom was free. That's my long term. Wow, so a little somber, but but good, really good. I like that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I yeah. just thought, uh, go all out. Yeah, no, it's good. I mean, it's the ultimate sacrifice, so it's sad, but it's also... You know, it's it's it's, yeah. it's hopeful and uplifting because he saved the kingdom. So yeah, he was a hero to the end. Exactly, exactly. I like it very much. Thank you very much. So that is Willow. Phil, do you have any Willow trivia for us? Okay, yes. Uh, Warwick Davis was only seventeen during the shooting of the film. Wow, it's crazy. And apparently, uh, George Lucas was inspired by Warwick Davis to to write the story of it anyway from when he worked with him on the Star Wars uh, when he worked with him on Return of the Jedi. Yep, yep. Uh, the creature at the end, the two-headed, fire-breathing monster is called you never actually hear the name in the film but it's called Ebor Sisk which was uh Ron Howard's and George Lucas's take on Siskel and Ebert the film critics which yep. I thought was quite nice and General Kale was named after Pauline Kale also a film critic yes that's right yeah yeah and uh, the devil dogs were actually Rottweilers and rubber masks and suits John Cusack tested for the role of Mad Martigan hmm. and Val Kilmer ad-libbed much of his dialogue in the film and he did an amazing job at it yeah yeah He's one of the best parts of this film. You know, you can oh, say yeah, yeah. whatever you want about, about Val Kilmer and his career. And, you know, he's got some reputation for being difficult. But I, I think he must have had a really fun time on this movie. And it remains my favorite role of his ever. I just think he he 
kind of makes he's like the Han Solo of this movie, you know, the lovable yeah, rogue. Yeah. Um, but he's just so much fun and and so magnetic and so electric to watch on screen. And as much as I love the whole film, uh, for me, Mad Mardigan is really the part of it that I love the most. And he's just he's just terrific. Well, I love it when he says he's the greatest swordsman who's ever lived. And part of you goes, oh, I hope he is. But the other part's going, I really hope he isn't because either way, it's going to be really good. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, also, I should mention that there was a series of books that was uh, plotted by George Lucas and written by Chris Claremont, the famous X-Men comic book writer, uh, that, that took place about 15 years after uh, Willow that were sort of like unofficial book sequels. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I've never read them. Phil, I don't... Have you read those? Uh, well, no, I, I remember starting to read one, but I found it... I, I uh, didn't get into it at yeah, the time. Same thing, actually. It, yeah, because it's <laughs> the... Uh, it was meant to be... Because it was going to be a planned trilogy, wasn't it, the films? But it just didn't do very well at the box office, so... Right. They just pumped the books out, but I just felt... It didn't feel like Willow at all in the slightest. I just didn't have a clue. Yeah, I couldn't get into it. Yeah. I remember trying to read the first one, couldn't get into it. But they did They did do a full trilogy of books. So anyway, uh, obviously, if you've read the books, you probably know by now that our endings, I would imagine, have very little to do with them. But if there is any overlap, uh, it's purely coincidental because neither of us have read that trilogy of books. Yeah. Just wanted to mention that. All right, well, there you go. So those are our endings for The Notebook and Willow. And with that, it is time to move on to our 100 years of Hollywood and 100 episodes. Uh, where typically we revisit a year from the last century of Hollywood. But as we've finished that, we are doing our movies we missed. So this is the 1970s, and we're going to talk about films that either we hadn't discovered yet the first time we went through the 70s years or films that didn't make our list but we think are still worthy of mention. So it's the 1970s. Phil, do you want to kick us off and give us your number 10? Yeah, my number 10 is a film from 1979 directed by John Huston, and it's called Wise Blood, and it Mm. stars Brad Dourif. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton, Ned Beatty, a few of these. And uh, basically, Brad Dourif, he's like a 22-year-old kid. He's a veteran of a war, turning up in a town. The taxi driver mistakes him for being a preacher because of a hat he's wearing. And he goes, he basically decides to go with it and sets up his own church, the Church of Truth Without Christ. And he basically starts preaching, trying to bring people there. Then he meets some people. He's a bit weird anyway. Well, it's a Brad Dourif character. He's usually a bit weird. But uh, people try to, women seem to fall for him and people want to be his friends. And then there's other, there's other preachers like a turf war thing going on. But it's uh, it's a bit odd, but it's uh, it's one of those ones where you can't help but watch and see where it goes. And it's got some amazing, great characters, uh, some great moments. And it's, uh, yeah, it's it's one of those odd 70s ones, which is, uh, you're not sure where it's going to end up. But it's, it's, it's worth checking out if you've, you've not seen it. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I've never actually even heard of that movie, I have to say, much less have seen it. So I'll have to check that out. But I'd totally forgotten about it until I was going through the list again. And somebody went, oh, I know that one. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Neat. Yeah, so uh, what's your number 10? Well, I have to say, like like I alluded to last week, I had much more fun with this week's list than I did with the, the 60s films. Uh, so I'm excited about the 70s, which is something I never thought I'd say. <laughs> As we, <laughs> we know, I've not always been kind to the 70s, but I may be in the middle of reevaluating them. So uh, my number 10, though is a tie, the only tie on my list. It is uh, between two movies that I loved when I was a kid, and they are No Deposit, No Return from 1976 and Return from Witch Mountain from 1978. Uh, pure nostalgia picks. They didn't make my original lists. They're, you know, I, I don't have strong enough memories for them to be yeah, full-on yeah. contenders for a top 10. But No Deposit, No Return stars David Niven and Don Knotts and was sort of one of those kind of live-action Disney Yeah, it rings a bell. I don't know if I've seen it, but I'm sure I probably have, but it rings a bell. You know, it was right around the time of, like, it, it fit right in alongside next to, like, the Apple Dumpling Gang and, like, the original Race to Witch Mountain. It was sort of one of those yeah, Disney yeah, yeah. family live-action movies. It's about these two kids who get left behind and they get these two crooks to fake kidnap them to try and get the, ransom them to their grandfather and then they have this 
big adventure and have a lot of fun with oh, Mr. Yeah, Crooks yeah. and stuff. It's just, that was when Disney were just pumping out loads of those kind of films. Yeah, and it, 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 I loved this movie when I was a kid. I haven't seen it probably since I was a kid, um, but I absolutely adored it. It was just one of my favorites. And then Return from Witch Mountain is the sequel to Escape to Witch Mountain, and not as good as the first one, but I, I really do have a strong affinity for both of these films from when I was a kid. So I'm sure both of these movies are horribly dated now, but I enjoyed them a lot when I was a kid. Like I said, pure nostalgia pick. So that's my number 10. A nice choice. Okay. Uh, my number nine is a film from 1977. It's an Australian mystery kind of film, a bit weird, lots of weird stuff going on. It's called The Last Wave. It's directed by Peter Weir, and it stars Richard Chamberlain, who plays a solicitor in Sydney. And there's all, we get, there's all sorts of weird things going on around Australia and the world, weird weather conditions, stuff like this. And he gets, uh, ends up getting involved in this murder, a murder case, and there's there's Aborigines involved, and he starts having strange dreams and all connected with the accused and other stuff. And then it's the whole, it's all tied in with the Aborigine dream world and po- possibly the apocalypse. And it's all, it's all very, Peter Weir does these weird dream-like things very well. It's very of its time, just this, this, this weird, this all these like strange dreams, visions, odd happenings, people talking a bit strange and things like that. And uh, you've got one man trying to put it all together and he's totally out of his depth to begin with. And yeah, it's uh, it's another good one. Very cool. I that It sounds vaguely familiar to me. Like when you were talking about it, I feel like I've actually seen it, but then I'm not yeah, sure yeah. if I actually have or if it's just, you know, something else that's tickling my memory. But good, good Yeah, choice. I find there's lots of films from like the 70s where you've, you end up when you do sit down and watch them now, you realize you, you did see them back, you know, a long time ago, but you just didn't, they didn't seem to stick for some reason. Right, right, exactly. Find, yeah. yeah, interesting. All right, well, my number nine is a film that I believe was on your top 10 list when we did 1976. It is Murder by Death, which coincidentally oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. also stars David Niven, <laughs> yeah, who was yeah. in my last one of my last films. But uh, it also has Peter Sellers and Peter Falk. It's kind of a, a comedy. Uh, about murder. Uh, Truman Capote is in it. And um, I think I had seen it. I had seen it before and I, I believe it had almost made my list. Yeah, I think but so, it yeah. just kind of got edged out. But I do really like the film and I thought now is a perfect time to, to squeeze it back in there. So that's my number nine. That's a nice choice. Great film. Uh, my number eight is uh, also stars Peter Sellers and alongside Shirley MacLaine. This one's from 1979 and it is Being There, directed by Hal Ashby. And Peter Sellers played a middle-aged man called Chance, also a bit simple-minded or quiet. He's, he's basically been looking after an old wealthy man who then dies. He ends up having, moving out and he meets, he basically just, nothing much really happens. Then he starts meeting some people and, and then he just he just has conversations with them and people seem to com- confuse his uh, the way he talks. Like simple, his simple way of talking, they, they equate that with him being like a genius in the world of business. And he gets, and he gets case of mistaken identity. People think he's like this prominent businessman, things like that. And it keeps going on. And he basically just keeps, walks his way through and he keeps getting taken to these other places. And he just, yeah, we just follow him through. And then there's like a weird thing happens at the end, but it's, it's, it's a good one. Some Peter Sellers films, I, sometimes I find Peter Sellers a little bit irritating. Yeah. I know he's like a genius comedy, really good dad, but sometimes I find him a little bit, uh, but this is more of the ones where I quite like the character he's playing. It's not so much in your face. It's a very, it's a very subdued role. Yeah. And I just like, it's the way, the way it works, people think this guy's a genius or speaking like uh, the truth. And it's just basically whatever you, you take, whatever you want out of a conversation. Right. But that's right. Uh, that's my number eight. Good choice. I, I want to say, I think that was on my list originally. I do, I do recall having watched it not that long ago. I think maybe it made my top 10, but I'm not, I'm not positive, but I think it did. Cause I do like that film. Yeah. Excellent choice. Okay. All right. Well, my number eight 
is a film that, once again, I believe was on your list uh, and didn't make mine, just got edged out. 1976 must have been a good year. Uh, it was The Bad News Bears. Oh, yeah, yeah, I like that one. Yeah, starring Walter Matthau and uh, Tatum O'Neill. And, of course, everyone knows The Bad News Bears. It's, you know, this foul-mouthed manager with all these young kids' baseball teams, and, you know, they're sort of the the terrible team and they come back to, you know, to win it all. It's a, you know, it's a funny comedy, you know, a little bit more R-rated ish than you remember <laughs> from being a kid, but uh a film I liked as a kid, I think it holds up fairly well. Uh, so bad news bears. How do you, how can you leave them off? That's my number eight. An excellent choice. Uh, my number seven is, I think it was on your list back from 1978. It was uh, heaven can wait. Oh, absolutely. It was probably one of my yeah, top yeah. three. I love that movie. Yeah. It's uh, directed by Warren Beatty and Buck Henry and not starring Warren Beatty. He plays uh, an American quarterback. He ends up getting killed in a car crash. And so before he can go to heaven, he's given the option to come back, uh, get reincarnated and tries out a number of different uh, people, bodies, however you want to say it. But it's really good. Uh, It's lots of great moments. The whole concept's really nice. It's been made a few times. It was based on uh, Harry Siegel's play of the same name. Uh, and there was another film adaptation in 1941 and there's been another since but it's yeah I just I just like the concept Warren BT was really really good and again he's one of those actors who I know he's a really good actor but I don't always take to him in all his films but I, I really liked him in this one it's a great film and it's my number seven yeah I, I really like that movie and I, I think it's actually Warren Beatty's best film or at least my favorite of his yeah yeah all right very good choice as you know I approve because it was on my on my list um, my number seven is uh, now this is where I start to get into films I haven't I had not seen. We did the years originally, so there's a bunch of them that I'm pretty uh, pretty excited. But my number seven is Family Plot from 1976. It is Alfred Hitchcock's last film. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's kind of an interesting one. It stars Bruce Dern and Barbara Harris, who's fantastic. Uh, Karen Black is in it. William Devane. And it's about this woman who's kind of like a psychic, and she's trying to find a lost person to make a bunch of money, and then they get involved with a, a diamond thief who doesn't know they're involved. It all gets very confusing. Not confusing. It all gets very mixed up. And there's a whole kind of journey to find this person who may or may not be dead. It's it's really fun film. It's got some good comedy elements to it. Uh, Barbara Harris is just utterly terrific in the lead role uh, as this psychic. It's got a great ending. Um, and, you know, even at the end of his career, Hitchcock still, still had a lot of talent left. It, clearly not as great as some of his you know, it's not up there with Psycho and, and you know, Rear Window and stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah. it's it's still a really enjoyable film. Um, and I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, I, I quite like that film. It's not it's not one of my favorites, but it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a, also got a little bit of a different feel. But it was like, it was his last film. So right. things have changed quite a bit from when he started. So, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's worth checking out, though, if you, if you do like Hitchcock's earliest stuff. Right. Uh, okay, my number six is Clute, 1971. Uh, directed and produced by Alan J. Pakula. And it stars Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland. It's also part of Pakula's, as he called it, his Paranoia Trilogy, which also includes the Parallax View and All the President's Men. Right. So it's that kind of vibe going into it. But it's basically there's somebody going around killing prostitutes. Uh, Jane Fonda's a prostitute and Donald Sutherland's called and he's playing John Clute, a detective. And he ends up becoming like a sort of enamored with with Jane Fonda's character and he wants to protect her. And you're following a detective story trying to figure out what's going on, who's doing it. It's through Tristan Turns. As, as you said, it's Paranoia Trilogy, so it's that 70s kind of, you know, who can you trust? Does everybody know? Is everybody watching me? Who's on the other end of the phone? Things like that. But great performances by everybody all around. I think Stallone's in this. Sylvester Stallone's in it, just very briefly, hmm. as a man. 
Dancing in a Nightclub. Oh, cool. That's one I've always wanted to see, actually. It's a film that I'm familiar with and I've always been very interested. I like that kind of movie and I just haven't gotten around to it, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. I think there's lots of good uh, detective films in the 70s. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It was a good time for that for that genre. Mm. Okay, my number six is another film I had not yet seen when I did the year 1975, uh, but I believe it was on your list. It's one of the big ones. It's Robert Altman's Nashville. Uh, a big, huge ensemble piece about country music and politics. Um, ironically, also has uh, Karen Black and Barbara Harris in the cast, who are both oh, in yeah, yeah, my number yeah. seven family plot. Um, and yeah. a million other people are in it, too. I mean, oh, just so many people. So many people. But it's a big, sprawling film about all different people, some of which connect, some of which doesn't. It's got that typical Altman thing where there's just dialogue on top of dialogue and everyone's talking. And, you know, it's just a very much like a just a like a 3D snapshot of life in Nashville and this country music scene and this political story and everything. Uh, calling it even having a story is a bit of a stretch, but I just watched this one for the first time a few months ago. Uh, actually, I watched it because I wanted to scratch off one of my movie squares on my 100 Essential Films poster. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I was able to do, and uh, and I enjoyed it. So that's my number six. Yeah, I do like Nashville. It's a good film. Robert Altman does... It's amazing how he does those things. It's just all dialogue and people talking over each other, but it just worked out. So they just do it. Not everybody can do that, but yeah, he always seemed to manage to do it really well. Right, right. Uh, my number five, I think this was probably on your list. It's from 1972. It's a disaster movie and it's The Poseidon Adventure. Of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably was my number uh, one or two. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. Uh, this one's, it's Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Shelley Winters, and lots of other famous faces on an ocean cruise ship, which ends up getting flipped over by a wave and they've got to get off. So you got all these characters going through all the different parts of the ship as it's slowly beginning to sink and it's upside down it's just great it's one of those films as well i sort of didn't watch it all the way through for a long time you sort of you'd always catch bits and pieces of it mm-hmm. and then you, you always enjoyed what you saw but then when you sit down and watch the whole thing as well you just go it's, it's so much better but yeah that's uh that's my number five yeah great choice uh, ironically i actually just watched it about two weeks ago uh, I was looking for something to put on <laughs> while I was doing some work and I put it on. It really holds up still. It still holds up yeah, really, yeah. really well. I mean, some of yeah. the special effects are some shots of the ship that are clearly a model and stuff. But I mean, really, once the ship's upside down, like the sets and the, you know, the peril and everything, the, everything looks great. And it's really it's really suspenseful and engaging. And yeah, I love it. All right. Well, my number five, this is a fun one to rediscover. Um, it is The Black Stallion from 1979. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, starring Terry Garr and Mickey Rooney. Uh, and what's interesting about this one, I remember seeing it when I was a kid. You know, it was a pretty big hit. I was very young when it came out. Um, I remember seeing it probably when I was like four or five. And I, you know, I, I, I think I liked it. I mean, I seem to recall liking it. It had a big black horse and, you know, whatever. And that was probably the last time I saw it or even thought about it. And uh, I recently, uh, Criterion Collection put out a, a very nice, you know, restored, remastered version of it, uh, I think last year. And I, I finally got around to watching it again uh, recently. And I was really surprised by what a great film it is. You know, you think of it as like, oh, The Black Stallion, kind of like this kid's film, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's really like just this very like, I don't want to use the word epic, but it's a very grown up and mature film with a lot of epic qualities to it. I mean, there's this whole sequence, a 28 minute sequence where there's no dialogue at all. It's just this kid and this horse on an island, you know, and it's I mean, yeah. beautifully shot. It was actually um, Caleb Deschanel, who's a very famous cinematographer. It was his first film. Um, it's just, I mean, it, this, the sound of it is amazing. There was a lot, a lot of technical achievements in the sound, uh, the, the microphones and stuff. And just, it's a really, it's one of those films I urge people to revisit. It's a much better, much more mature grown up film, still appropriate for kids, but just really like when you watch it as an adult, you're like, this is a beautiful movie. Like this is really 
a great film. It's not just like a family film where you kind of watch it and go, that's enjoyable. You watch it and you go, this is very artistic and, and really impressive. You, you mentioned it. Now. I know I saw it. It must have been like in the 80s. I've not seen it since and I don't recall much about it. So right. yeah, I'll have to see that again. It's very impressive. Cool. Oh, that's, yeah, I'll definitely have to, to watch that again. Yeah. Okay, my number four is one I thought I had had on my, my list of 1973, but it's not. must have just got pushed out, but it's uh, Don't Look Now, directed by Nicholas Rogue, starring uh, Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. Mm, right. Uh, based on a short story by Daphne du Maurier. About, it's about a couple who, sadly, they lose their daughter in the opening scene, and like an absolute heart-wrenching scene. It's like a gut punch, but Donald Sutherland just acts the hell out of it. Uh, they go to Venice, and they meet a strange couple of sisters who... One of them is meant to be clairvoyant, and meanwhile, there's 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 a, people who get murdered. There's a sex scene, which is meant to be one of the all-time best sex scenes, and at the time, people go, "Well, did they really do it or not?" But it's uh, you watch it, it, does it's it all works really well. And then at the end, when what happens happens, you're just going, "Oh, dun dun dun! Oh my god!" <laughs> uh, uh, but no, it's a it's a very stylish. I won't say beautiful, but it's a, it's extremely well-made film with some beautiful moments, some. Disturbing moments. It's a it's a brilliant movie and a fantastic piece of filmmaking and some stunning performances. Very good. I um I did not make my list originally either for 1972. So when I was going through the 70s, I saw that I was like, oh, I could put that on my list. And then I realized I don't actually like this movie all that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see what I can see that as well. I can see why people wouldn't like it. You know, it's it's certainly a well put together film, and I, I can see a lot of the qualities that it has it's not like i think it's a bad film it's just not quite my cup of tea you know what i'm saying yeah yeah all right well my number four is from 1972 as well different film though it is frenzy directed by alfred hitchcock so hitchcock makes two appearances on my list this is his second to last <laughs> film another one i had not seen until very recently uh nobody really famous in it but it is the story of a, a serial killer the necktie strangler and of course a, an innocent man who gets mistaken for being the serial killer. So very traditional Hitchcock story, uh, but told in a different way, I think, than usual. Uh, we follow both the innocent man and the killer in this case, and the killer gets more and more frenzied, if you will, as he's trying to prevent protect his identity. And the innocent man, of course, is getting more and more uh, in trouble, of in danger of being caught. So, um, But it's a really good film. I liked it quite a bit. Uh, another Hitchcock in color. Again, not quite up to the level of his earlier works, but for someone as late in his career as it was, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Uh, yeah, it, it was different. Yeah, the way they followed the two characters. Right. It's a bit different, but yeah, good choice. Uh, my number three is from 1972. I'm, I think it was on your list, but uh, the, the Candidates, Robert Redford. Uh, no, actually, I have never seen it. Okay, well, that's, it's my number three. This one is where uh, Robert Redford, he's playing the son of a former California governor, and he's asked to uh, to run uh, for for Senate. Yeah, so the Democrats want somebody to, to, to run against the current... Uh, Republican, because nobody expects the Republican one to lose. So basically, these these tell Robert Redford's character. He says, "Well, you can go. You know, you're not going to win. So you can just say what you want. You know, just talk about your values. You're good. You're a good kid. You talk about your values. Do that. Blah blah blah. And as it goes on, things change because he's he's telling the truth. He's speaking his mind. People sort of, you know, it looks like he's got a chance of winning. And it just it just follows that round and the effects of the campaign." And then about how, uh, because of the changes, where it looks like it's going to change, then Robert Redford's character begins changing what he's saying just to try and make it so, you know, it's it's he's not focusing on any one thing because he couldn't, what he was saying at the start, he couldn't possibly do. But it's just as it's it's basically about time to compromise and things like that, it goes on. But it's, it's really well done. Uh, great performance as always by Robert Redford. And it's my number three. Yeah, I definitely have to see that one, not only because it has Redford, but it, it sounds like my kind of movie. So yeah, I yeah, definitely really have to track that down. All right, well, my number three, you know, I... I 
I know I hadn't watched this until sometime I'd say in the last two years. I'm guessing I must have watched it after we did our 1977 episode because I can't figure out how it wouldn't have ended up on my list if otherwise. And I checked my list. It wasn't on there. Uh, it's one of the more famous movies of all time. It is Saturday Night Fever. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I think I do believe I had not seen yet because I think we did 77 fairly early on. Um, plus, it was a, a pretty good year. But I, I don't think I would have left it off my list. But of course, starring John Travolta, big disco, you know, hit. But not a movie about dancing, a movie that has a lot of dancing in it. Uh, but really the movie about this young man and his life and his friends and some of the trouble they get into and some darker things, especially towards the end. But, you know, it's a really great film. It's, it's you know, you think, oh, it's disco dancing, it's old, it's dated, but, it, you know, it's it's about these characters and the drama, so it holds up really well. Uh, terrific performance by John Travolta and just uh, just a good film and, of course, an iconic soundtrack. Yeah, great film. I think that was on my list at the time. But I, yeah, it's, I think uh, it was, yeah. It's the film you don't expect. You have your impression of it, don't you, in your head, and then when you finally see it, you realize it's not quite what you thought it was going to be. Exactly. Okay. Uh, my number two is uh, from 1973, the, written and directed by Terence Malick, and it's Badlands, which stars Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek. It's loosely based on a real-life murder spree of Charles Starkweather and his girlfriend, but Mart- Sissy Spacek is narrating it, and she meets this 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 guy, Martin Sheen. They go uh, driving around America, killing people. It's Terence Malick, so it's uh, one of his early ones as well. So... It's just, it's beautifully shot. There's some beautiful scene, scenes in it. Yeah, and you've probably seen lots of them. But it's also, it's I think it's a lot more self-contained than some of his other films. And it's, again, great performances by everybody. Uh, some tense scenes where, you know, people are going to die. Martin Sheen's character is totally unhinged. But it's, ter- it's through the lens of Terrence Malick, so it looks beautiful. And that's my number two. Very good. All right. Well, my number two is a little bit of a cheat, but I'm, I don't care. I'm putting it on there anyway. It's from 1978 and it's called Someone's Watching Me. And it was actually a television movie, uh, but it was directed by John Carpenter. One of his earliest Oh, yeah, films. yeah, yeah. That's just getting a re-release, yep. isn't it? Yeah, it just Blu-ray. came out on Blu-ray a couple months ago. Yeah. Uh, and it stars Lauren Hutton and David Burney and Adrian Barbeau, who is fantastic, of course. Um, and it's about, it's kind of a precursor to a lot of films that they made, like Sliver in the 90s, things like that. It's about this woman who moves into a high-rise apartment in California, and someone is watching her and sending her threatening letters and calling her. And, of course, the violence starts to escalate as the film goes on. But, you know, it's it's early John Carpenter. It's really terrific, uh, you know, because it's a TV movie. There's nothing. There's no real blood or, or you know, anything like that. But it's very tense. Great performances. Just a really suspenseful film that the suspense just keeps ratcheting up and up as it goes on. Um, looks terrific, you know, and just really enjoyable. Just a fun thriller. Uh, so even though it was released on television, it's still a movie that came out in the 70s. And I think it's deserving of a, wi- a wider audience. So it was an easy pick for me at number two. Excellent. Yeah, I've not seen that one. It's one I've always meant to. But oh, Yeah, it's really good. Especially if you're a Carpenter fan, which I know you are. Yeah, yeah. Oh, excellent. Okay, that's good. Okay, my number one then is from 1973. Uh, and it's Serpico, ah. starring Al Pacino, and it's directed by Sidney Lumet. It's uh, based it's based on the true story of uh, Frank Serpico, who's a police officer. He went on he didn't like what he was seeing the corruption in the police force, and he went undercover uh, to sort it out and testified. And it's just it follows it's like it's over ten ten or so years uh, from I think through the sixties and a bit of the seventies, uh, following Serpico as he as he tries his best to do his job. He's got he's got his colleagues don't like him because of what he's doing. He gets threatened by his peers, things like that. Uh, and also dealing with crimes and things and his relationships going up. But it's uh, it's one of Al Pacino's, he has his moments going full Al Pacino in it, but it's, 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 uh, it's my number one and it's Serpico. Excellent choice. That was on your list the first time. I thought it was, but it wasn't. Interesting. 
I still have never seen Serpico, believe it or not. It's one of those movies I keep meaning to get to and just haven't gotten around to. Well, good choice. All right, well, my number one is very different from that. I, it's not quite such a, a lofty or well-respected movie, but it is a movie I enjoy the heck out of. It is from 1977, and it is called Roller Coaster. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a good film, yeah. So it is. Uh, it stars George Siegel, Timothy Bottoms, Richard Widmark, Henry Fonda, and a very young Helen Hunt. Uh, and it's this really great kind of semi-pseudo-disaster film about a kind of mad bomber who is taking out roller coasters full of people in amusement parks. Uh, I mean, come on. How cool is that? So we yeah, follow yeah. these people trying to stop this guy who is blowing up roller coasters as they're as they're coasting and causing numbers of deaths as people go flying off these roller coasters. Uh, it's really fun. I love disaster movies. This one really captures that spirit of the disaster movies, and it's got a great ensemble cast. And I remember what's funny is we did our episode for 1977, and I got this movie to review, and I watched it probably the day after we recorded our 1977 oh. episode. And I was like, damn it, because <laughs> like, I really loved it. And I was like, this would have been perfect to put on 1977, but we already recorded it. So I've been waiting all this time, which is like 60 episodes or something, just so I could talk about Roller Coaster because I really, really enjoyed this movie. And I literally watched it right after we recorded 1977. So cool. I'm excited to finally get to put it. So it was an easy choice for me to go in right at number one because I, I really enjoy it. It's a fun film. It's out on Blu-ray from Shout Factory. So track it down if you like that kind of movie. Yeah, I remember saying it years ago and it's yeah, there's those ones where it's, it's all a bit tense, you know, when the, it's got the focus, you develop the coaster going around and you keep flashing to the bomb and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. I like all those kind right. of stuff. Yeah. yeah. That's my number one, Roller Coaster from 1977. An excellent choice and an excellent list. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was definitely more enjoyable than my than my 60s list. I actually like all of these movies, so I'm, I'm happy <laughs> yeah. that we got to get through that. Yeah. And next week, next week we're going to go to our movies we missed from the 1980s, the beloved decade of the 80s. So you know that's going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to be lots. I think that's going to be a hard one to narrow that down to 10. Just yeah, ten. yeah, for sure. But it'll it'll be a good time. Uh, so, Phil, as we're starting to wrap things up, why don't you tell people what else will be in store for them in our next episode? Yeah, so uh, next next time, we're going to be going after the ending of Van Wilder and The Fugitive. Yeah, two films. I actually really enjoy both of those, so that should be fun. So we're going to have those two movies and the 80s. That is going to be maybe one of my favorite episodes ever. It's got that potential. <laughs> it looks good. It looks good on paper, Mike. It does. It does indeed. Let's see if it'll live up to that potential. <laughs> All right. Well, meanwhile, that is going to wrap us up for now. So as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. What's right, the uh, um, what's the magic phrase he does in uh, in Willow? I have no idea. Because he's got a, it's the same phrase when he's practicing with the wand. Yeah, isn't it like Expelliarmus or <laughs> Wings Levioso or one of those things? Isn't that it? Wasn't yeah. it Harry Willow? Wasn't that his full name? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I found it. Toa Fanamonda Knocklith Fockbar, you old pigs, pigs. There you go. Yeah, that was totally totally worth it. That would have made for a great intro. I, know. I was like, so Phil, how are you? And you yeah, go, fuck boy, you old pigs. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'm sure our yeah. listeners would be like, what the hell am I listening to? I know, but uh, it's, it's an outtake. Yeah, yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah, writes itself. <laughs> Especially the part where you say fuck bar, because that sounds a little oh, bit yeah. like something fuck, else. I, I said fuck bar with a V. <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, fuck bar, okay. Fuck so bar. Yeah. Mike, do you want to tell the listeners what we're doing for our top 10? Top five, top I like that. You got a dog over there? Yeah, it's fun. Don't always hear it. Just starts down at the end. Yeah. Well, I hope it shuts up because that's going to make for some tricky editing. <laughs> yeah. I just, I'm just going to look out the window see what see if anybody's just 
to stay right. in Hollow. Right. But there's no one there. I think there could be a squirrel running around the way. Yeah. Talking. What's funny is right after you stood up, the, the dog got quiet for like a good long moment. And I was like, <laughs> oh, Phil's staring it down. He's just like looking at the window, like staring at this dog. And the dog's like, <laughs> her whirlwind. Yeah. <clears throat> her whirlwind. <laughs> whirlwind. Gather around, kids. Uncle Mike's going to tell a story about when he was young. Um, uh, yeah, what was that? I was maybe an old man going. Oh, okay. That's slightly creepy. Yeah, I raised my um, fist as well when I did it. <laughs> yeah. oh, like an old man. Yeah, I, I, I might edit that out.